You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Some of you might have heard the name Mickey Cohen. He was a, a criminal. He was a, a gangster. He uh, worked with Al Capone, actually. There is a story that he became a, a Christian. Uh, this happened in the height of his criminal career. He was asked to attend an evangelistic service. And at that service, he showed uh, some interest in the things of Christ. After hearing this, many uh, prominent Christian leaders started to visit with him. They started to exhort him to accept Christ. And as the story goes, late one night after being uh, urged greatly to give his life to Christ, he did. And many believers heard of this news and they thought that this was a great hope that things would change in the criminal community, that there would be, uh, that Cohen would become a, a great influence. But as time passed, there was no change. There was no influence. In fact, nothing changed in Cohen's life. It got to the point where some of these Christian acquaintances of his came back and confronted him and explained to him that being a Christian means that you probably need to give up some things in your life. Your life needs to change, like your friends and your criminal enterprises. His response was this. There are Christian football players, there are Christian cowboys, there are Christian politicians. Why can there not be a Christian gangster? Was Mickey Cohen a Christian? On one hand, we recognize that only God knows the heart, but we also know that Christians are known by their fruit. And at some point, we recognize that just because one confesses Christ does not mean that they possess him. So I bring this up just to introduce the subject today. One of the things that we've been doing the last Sunday of the month as we uh, prepare to come to the Lord's table and celebrate uh, communion together is that we take up a, a question that you have submitted. I haven't asked for more questions for a while. Maybe it's because I was hesitating on dealing with this one. Um, but you are, you are very welcome to submit questions and I will try to get to them uh, sooner or later. The, the question today really came up a few different times in various ways from different people. I had a, a few different questions come to me asking me about besetting sin in the life of a Christian. A Christian that, that refused to repent. In other words, we know that Christians are not free from sin, but there's a difference between one who calls themselves a Christian, who struggles with their sin, who fights against it, wants to rid their life of it, and then those who are uh, comfortable with both the label of being a Christian and who are really very comfortable in the sin of their own skin, as it were. So what should we make of these? Other questions came in the way of those who call themselves Christians who fall away and deny Christ altogether. What do we make of them? I think in both instances, the word that we're looking for is apostasy. 
It's not a comfortable subject. It's a very difficult subject. R.C. Sproul defines it this way. He says, uh, simply, apostasy is the old, vigorous word to describe the abandonment of Christ. I think that's a very simple but very adequate definition. I think as we go proceed here, you'll see why. Uh, but you might say, but, but pastor, the questions that you received are different. One seems to be apostasy and the other not. One has abandoned Christ. That's a question. That's clearly apostasy. But the other still uh, wants and takes the label Christian. I, I would suggest that there is a point in which it does not matter how one labels themselves. But in the end, it is the church that will determine if one has fallen away or not. To apostatize, to apostatize means to fall away. I was telling somebody the other day this. Uh, I saw an advertisement for Drag Queen storybook time on, at a library or something like that on social media. And it, it took my attention that the, the person that was featured as the book reader was from a, a quote-unquote Christian church. Now, one doesn't want to make any rash judgments about the church, so you kind of, on the internet, go down the rabbit trail, look up the, the church on the internet. Uh, the church actually had more in common with paganism than it did the Orthodox Christian faith. They referred to themselves as Christian, and it's important to understand that this church started out to be more Orthodox. But the popular denomination that it was in saw this drift and disfellowshipped them. Not only were there LGBTQ issues at play, but essential Christian doctrines were being denied. Like the Trinity, like the literal resurrection of Christ and a proper understanding of the atonement. This is apostasy. Sometimes the apostate will label their departure as apostasy. Or today, the, the term that is commonly used is deconstruction. At least some of the times it's used synonymously with apostasy. The departure from the faith. And it is important to understand that every instance of this does not look the same. I, I remember hearing a, a message in church when I was growing up, when I was young, one of those ones that, that part of it just stuck with you. The pastor taught that if you heard the gospel a, a certain number of times, he said there was, there was probably a, a number to it. If you heard the gospel uh, so many times but you failed to respond, your heart would be hardened and you would eventually, it, it would just be too late for you to ever respond again. I, I remember hearing that. I remember that it, it frightened me. I had responded to the gospel, but I still had sin. There was still a rebellious spirit within me, and there was this question in my mind. Perhaps I heard the gospel too many times. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was here, I heard it. Perhaps I was guilty of this kind of apostasy, and it was too late for me. Of course, I don't remember the passage the pastor was preaching on. I would venture to say, though, that the pastor was doing what he was doing in that moment was very close to manipulation, if not outright manipulation. He was using that as a tactic to get people to respond. And I say very close, perhaps, because there are these warnings in Scripture. That things like this are not foreign to Scripture. There's great warnings when it comes to apostasy or falling away from the faith. 
There's more subtle things, like Judas. No one saw Judas coming. Jesus did, I guess, but his faith seemed genuine. He, he was with the other 12 disciples. He, he was one of them. Another subtle warning are, are the many instances of Scripture in apostasy, of apostasy in Scripture. Those who were once numbered amongst the, the regenerate and then fell away. I mean, we're going to see this example come up in John chapter 6. That, that many of the disciples that, that were following him left. Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 left because we are told he fell in love with the things of the world. And isn't that a legacy? To have your, your name be mentioned in the Bible once and it's because you, you fell away? The fact is, most of us uh, probably know somebody who claimed to, to be a Christian at one time and then fell from the faith. Today we are hearing this, this over and over from once influential uh, Christians, whether uh, worship leaders or musicians, in the case of Jonathan Harris, uh, an influential pastor and author. And these make these large public statements expressing the fact that now they no longer believe. Every time there's one of these stories, people are left to wonder, how in the world can this be? Of course, we ought to let these things be a warning to us. If it happened to them, could it happen to us? The fact is, Jesus said, those who persevere to the end will be saved. The fact is equally true then, there are those that do not persevere to the end and are not saved. Now, let me just interject, and I'll, and I'll make more of this later, but I, I realize that at this point, the, the question comes up in, in our minds, and I, and I don't want us to get too off on this, but uh, our minds thinking this, this way, but the, the question, can I lose my salvation? Is apostasy somebody that was, that was saved, and then now they're not saved? That's front and center in this conversation, and what I, I'm saying is, can our salvation be lost? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. That there is a reality of apostasy, but the Bible is very clear that the true believer will persevere to the end. He who started a good work in you is faithful and just to complete that good work. Philippians 1.6, Romans 8, those who God foreknew are the ones he justified, he ultimately glorifies them. The teaching of scripture is that what happens when one is truly saved cannot and is not undone because of something that we do. If we could do something to cause our salvation to be lost, then there would be not one person saved. God holds and keeps those who are his. We persevere, not because of our own might, but because of his might. I mean, I wish I would have had the foresight to, to go through and, and think about the, the songs that we just sang this morning that talk about these things. These truths were in every song that we sang. Sometimes we, we sing the song um, with these words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. 
a remarkable and beautiful truth. So that there's two truths, right? There's the, the truth of, of what we call perseverance of the saints, that those who are, are truly saved will ultimately persevere to the end, this beautiful truth. And then there's also the truth of apostasy. We love to stress the first. We even have pithy sayings, like once saved, always saved. We find great rest in that, but we don't stress the reality of apostasy. And part of the reason is that the scriptures that teach it are difficult to say the least. Difficult in the fact that apostasy is real, it does happen. It's not a pleasant thing to think about or preach on. And also, those passages that talk about this are difficult to interpret. They've been uh, understood and, and misunderstood, and it's, they've just been really hard. With that said, let's turn to perhaps the most difficult passage in all of the scriptures. Uh, we find this in Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, we recognize, though, that our time here in this passage is, is limited this morning. But I will say also that good Christians have differed here. I really don't think there are, though, even though there's a lot of differences and a lot of nuance, I don't think there's a lot of good options when it comes to understanding this text. And I think you're going to see that as we approach it and the way we're going to approach it then I think will make a lot of sense. One commentator called the warning that exists here in, in chapter 6 of Hebrews the most terrifying warning in all of the New Testament. So let's read it. Let's start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgments. And this we will do if God permits for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultified receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and, thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed and its end is to be burned. So you can see that it's, it's a complicated passage and we need to understand a, a couple things as we walk into it. Uh, so the, the purpose of Hebrews is to show that Christ is better. That's the, that's the purpose of Hebrews. He's better than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's the great high priest. Jesus is the Savior. He's, he's better than any other system that we could put our faith in. He's, he's better. And, and the other thing that we need to, to just kind of touch on as we begin this, and there's a little bit of debate here, but I would say that uh, the, the book was written to a Jewish audience. 
Some would say that it was written to Gentiles. I'm not going to get into the evidence there, why I think what I think, but certainly uh, one way or the other, the, the author of Hebrews, whoever that is, talks a lot about uh, a lot of, about Jewish things. And in fact, one of the things that's so difficult in understanding the book of Hebrews as a whole is that one needs to have a really good grasp of the Old Testament to track with the author. Like Jesus Christ is the, the high priest after the order of Meshilzadek. Those things in, in the book, you need to have this understanding of the Old Testament to go back and, and to understand what the author is, is talking about. With that in mind, we, we come to chapter 6 and we realize that, that what he is saying here is, is being at least in, in part is based on what comes before it. The first word in, in chapter 6 is therefore. And so let's just back up a little bit and get some context and, and read a little bit in, in chapter 5. The author uh, there chides the, the reader. It's not starting in chapter 6. Let's go back up to verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Basic principles. Uh, elementary teaching, right? You're seeing the... The, the connection, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the, the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, of those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. So the author here is desiring the reader to leave immaturity, to put on maturity, to dig deeper, as it were, to train themselves to discern good from evil. If I had time, I would stop at this point and really highlight that connection between immaturity when it comes to doctrine and theology and one's discernment of things. It always amazes me that there are people that do not grasp the most elementary of Christian doctrine but are looked up to as models of discernment. Here the author of Hebrews is clear. The one still on milk does not discern like the one who is on solid food. So there is a, a general agreement here that these elementary teachings, these things that is referring to about Christ are, are played out here in the text in the first three verses. So you're, you're wondering, what is this elementary teaching? What is this things that they, they knew. Well, uh, there are six things that comprise this elementary teaching. They have been instructed in these things. So there's, there's teaching that has taken place. There, 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 they've been uh, instruction regarding repentance from the acts that lead to death. The idea there is repenting or turning away from trusting in, in one's own works for salvation. Secondly, and closely related, not only was one turning away from a, a works-based salvation, but there, there was a positive act of faith in God. You need to trust in, in God. There was instruction regarding uh, faith, as it were. Turning from dead works that accomplishes nothing, one must, uh, through faith, then be joined in relationship to God. Third and, and fourth, I'll put them together. They're separate in your notes, I think, but I'll, I'll put them together. Uh, there, there was the instruction when it came to, to baptism and the laying on of hands. The ESV translates this uh, correctly. It should be washings. And that has to do with the, the, the Jewish audience, referring more to the Jewish rites. The, the laying on of hands probably symbolized the, the meaning of, of baptism, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. And, and then five and six new converts were given instruction about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So this was kind of the, the basic uh, teaching 
that they had. We can say a lot more about these things, but uh, I think that the point that, that needs to be made is that when one, anyone, a Jew or a Gentile, wanted to uh, convert to, to Christianity, they wanted to they express interest, there was instruction that took place. There was a, a form of, of catechism uh, that, that took place. They were instructed in these, these elementary things, and they had uh, an idea of what these things were. It wasn't just a subjective, random uh, thing. There was a list of, of items of what it meant to be instructed in the things of the faith. They had elementary knowledge of what it means to be a Christian, of faith in, in Christ Jesus. Of, they, they, they knew these, these things. One couldn't say, you're, you're just ignorant. You didn't know the, the gospel. They, they knew it. They understood it. They were instructed in the elementary teachings of the faith. The problem is, is they did not move on from there. So the ones that the author is speaking of here have been taught these things. Now, the, the problem is, is that even though these people had an excellent beginning, uh, training here does not mean that one's going to avoid life's pitfalls, that they'll avoid problems. Some of these uh, converts, despite their instruction, have uh, calcified. They, they grew stagnant. They never went on beyond this elementary teaching. One pastor that I read called them stillborn. Their, their faith seemed promising, but it turned out to be dead in the end. It's kind of a gross picture, but it really makes the, the point. They, they stayed the same. One could say it this way, that they actually went worse. They, they retreated. They went back to, to works. When I say that they, they go backwards, I, I mean this. That these were Jews that slid back into their old faith. The difference is that salvation for the Jew is through law-keeping. For the Christian, salvation is through faith in the law-keeper. So there is this warning, call, to move on to maturity. The idea here is, in, is found in the axiom. Where there is life, there is growth. I think one of the, the devil's greatest deceptions is that he gets people to think that they're maturing and growing in the Christian faith, but in reality they're not. For instance, when we read scripture, how do we, how do, we do it? You know, what, what role does scripture actually play in our, in our life? I mean, con do, we, do we contemplate its meaning? Or do we read it for a moment and then we move on to something else? I mean, when is the last time, for instance, that you read a passage? Let's just say John 15. Abiding in Christ. You read it, and then you read it again. And you, and you read it again because you really wanted to, to grasp what is it to abide in Christ. And let's even add on to that. When's the last time that you sought help in really grasping the heart of the text by somebody else who had poured hours and hours of study into that text, who knew the original language, who, who studied that text and others relevant and, and wrote a book on it? I'm not saying that reading a book on abiding in Christ is a replacement for Scripture. But hear what I'm saying. I'm saying that Ephesians 2 is very clear that God has given the church teachers and that we are to learn from them. To say, I don't need a teacher. I'm good. Just me and my Bible. We just go in the closet. We have a, we have a good time. I just meditate. I, I think of all these things that come into my mind when I read I hate to break it to you. That is not a sign of maturity. 
to say, eh, me and my Bible, that's it. The Lord is, has given the church teachers. He's equipped them. So, then we get to verses 4 through 6. This is that terrifying warning. For it is impossible. And just let that sink in for a moment. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, who have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Now, there are basically three different ways we can understand this. The, the first way to say is, is to say that this is hypothetical. What the, the author of Hebrews is doing is putting forth a hypothetical situation, a situation that has actually never existed and is a warning about sin that is impossible to commit. The purpose for him to do this would be hyperbole. That the purpose would be to uh, keep Christians from falling from the faith. It is a, a what if kind of thing. What if this happened? What if, you know, so then the, the purpose would be to, to grow people and to spring them on uh, to maturity because of this hypothetical situation that never really exists. Uh, another way of dealing with this would be to understand it that the author is referring uh, to here, the people that he's referring to here, uh, is a reference to actual bona fide believers. These people are, are Christian people. They're ones that would say uh, God gives grace to those who trust him, but ultimate perseverance of, of any believer depends on that believer. In this view, any believer in any state is capable of apostasy. So there's the hypothetical, the actual, those two, two theories. There's another view, which we would call the apparent view. This is this, in this view, this is where uh, I am, would say that those who fall into this category are not true believers, but men and women that appear to be. These have been exposed to the gospel. They've, been, uh, they've responded to the gospel. They've made uh, professions of faith. And, and based on that, they've been received into the fellowship of the church. And then later, they abandon that profession. And some even become Christ's opponents at that point. They are people that uh, appeared to be. There are several reasons, I think, that... Uh, one should take that view, the view of the apparent. Uh, let me give you a few of them. Uh, first, if we think about the Old Testament, specifically uh, the wilderness wanderings. And those people in that 40 years, right, the, the people, that first generation there that, that died in the desert in, in disbelief. What is said here in Hebrews really parallels that situation. Those two have been enlightened. They shared and tasted in the things of God, but yet they fell away. Just, just think about this. The Israelites that died in disbelief shared in the experience of, of placing blood over their doorposts. They ate the Passover lamb. They, they crossed the Red Sea. I mean, the list goes on and on to what they experienced, but yet they died and, and did not believe. A second point here is that Jesus tells us in the parable of the soils that there are people who at the start look very much like a true believer, but in the end are not regenerate. 
Not only do these people look like Christians, but they have a a Christian experience before they fall away. He hears the word. They receive it with joy, we are told. Initially, that's what happens. But then when trouble comes, when the pleasures of the world come, they fall away. And if you remember, there's only one genuine soil, one genuine believer. The third reason here is that uh, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints that, that we mentioned earlier is affirmed so clearly in God's word. Uh, uh, in scripture interpretation, the, the idea is that the clearest passages of scripture always interpret, uh, use those to interpret the ones that are less clear. So like this passage in Hebrews must be understood in light of what has been made very clear in scriptures. The doctrine says that the, the believer will persevere to the end. We referenced uh, Philippians 1.6 already. Romans 8, we learned that, that nothing will separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 1.4, we see that believers are kept by the power of God through faith. Ephesians 4.30, the believer is sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption. In John 10, we see that Jesus knows those who are his, his sheep, know him. He gives them eternal life. They will not perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. It can't get any clearer than that. And that is just a, a fraction of the passages that speak of this glorious truth. A fourth thing to consider here is that uh, the spiritual experience that are listed in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, are within the capacity of an unbeliever. In other words, there's, there's no reason to think that those things that are listed there are only true of true believers. Certainly one could be enlightened to see some benefit in being a Christian. They could have gone uh, through or have gone through a, a membership class. They could see Christ's work. A non-believer can make a profession of faith. They could be baptized. They could partake of the Lord's Supper. All of those things could happen. Again, it's not only Christians who have seen the powers of the coming age. Some unbelievers certainly have seen God at work in marvelous ways, like those in the the wilderness who saw uh, the Lord work in, in, in great ways, leading them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. But in the end, they do not believe. In Matthew 7, Jesus will say to some at the very end, depart from me, I never knew you. They will tell of the things that they have done in in Jesus' name, the the powerful ways they saw him work. And it isn't a, a case of Jesus once knew them, but now he doesn't. It's a case that he never knew them. At this point, one might ask, well, how is it possible to experience all of this, but then not believe? And then there's mystery here. I don't understand. I don't understand it. It's hard for me to grasp, but I do know that Judas did. I would admit that there's mystery. And from a Christian perspective, it's extremely difficult to understand how one can once seem to grasp the beauty of the gospel. One can be allured by it, make a confession, but then fall away. But the great warning in this passage comes in the phrase, it is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again by their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
So the, the question is, is, why is it impossible? Some say at this point, well, this is where it's hypothetical. It really isn't impossible. The author is just using strong language to make a, a point. Now, I would, I would say at this point, I mean, that's appealing to me on some level, right? I, I would admit, but, but I don't think that's the best understanding that the author is just making a hypothetical point, that he's using uh, stronger language than he really needed to. Some at this point uh, make a reference to the, the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12, 32. It says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what these are suggesting would be that by their falling away here, what they have done is, is spoken a word against the Holy Spirit by attributing a God's work to Satan. That's generally understood of what it means to, to speak against the Holy Spirit. And I don't know, like, like I said, there's, these passages are extremely difficult. There's a lot of speculations that surrounds the, the unpardonable sin. So when you bring that passage, two difficult passages that are hard to understand, you bring them together, uh, it, it doesn't get easier. But could this be the case here that these were attributing God's works to Satan in, in some way and that they're falling away and, and why it's impossible them to be restored is because they, they've done this. They've attributed God's work to, to Satan in, in some way, I, I suppose. But again, I, I don't think that's the best way to, to understand this. I don't think it takes into account the context. I, I don't think it takes into account um, a lot of things. The way I would understand this is that the author has in mind uh, first... Uh, immature professors. Remember chapter 5, these, these are the ones that uh, should be teachers, but they're still on milk. There's this call to, to maturity here. Let everyone of us, therefore, leave the elementary teachings and go on to, to maturity. Now, some of these immature Christians who have been instructed in the faith, who are apparent believers, that have now fallen away. And the question is, is how so? How have they fallen away? Right? They, I think there's, a, there's a, a key here. The author's reference to dead works in verse 1 I think is very important. These are turning from Christ as the object of their faith back to a system of, of dead works. This idea of, of works is, is brought up in, in these passages several times. So work-based salvation. They're going back under an old system. Paul says in Romans 3, no one is justified by the works of the law. Yet, these that should know better, they've been instructed in the elementary teachings, are then turning from that truth back to a system of works rather than Christ. And it's a very conscious decision. They're saying, I get it. I know the gospel. I've been instructed in this way but yet, I'm so immature that I'm going to go back and I'm going to say this is better. To trust in dead works. To trust in my own ability. To not trust in Christ Jesus for my salvation. In Galatians 3.10 we read this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be to everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Think about that. Curse. 
Again, in Galatians 5.4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Again, these are those who are instructed in the faith. They know the gospel. They made a profession of faith, but yet they abandoned Christ for a system of a works-based justification. Apparently, in the churches of Galatia, there was this problem that those in the church were depending on the law to save them. They were being persuaded by these guys that were coming in and adding to the gospel. Paul says at the beginning of the book, if anybody preaches a gospel to you contrary to the one I teach, let that person be accursed, damned. That's the idea. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like what the author of Hebrews is talking about? They're abandoning the the truth of the gospel for another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. If you're under the law, you must do it all perfectly, or you're cursed and you're cut off from the promises of God. In fact, if you want to be made right before God by law-keeping, then you're severed from Christ, fallen from grace. It's strong language, maybe not as strong as the author of Hebrews here, but they are making the same point. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ as our only hope, not to be an alternate method for salvation. And as I close here, let me just highlight that it isn't only a Jewish problem. The fact is, there there are those today that misunderstand the law. They don't understand the law's purpose. Either they don't see the law as, uh, as good. They find it irrelevant. They say things like, we're not under the law, we're under grace, so therefore I'm not gonna worry about the law. They conflate the, the law with the gospel. Let me put that another way. They, they mix justification and sanctification. They're, we're saved by our, our works somehow. They mix being made right with God to growing in godliness. My friends, and this is the point of the author of Hebrews, Christ is better. In fact, all of these other things, they, they cannot save. Christ is the only savior. The law cannot save. Why would you want to go back under it? The law says, I can't do this on my own. I can't live up to that obligation. And it says, I must therefore flee to Christ and trust in his mercy. Why would one ever know the truth of the gospel and opt for justification by obedience to the law that you could never, ever do? As Christians, we get confused. We constantly need to be reminded of the gospel. We sometimes mix law and gospel. We need to get it straightened out. Sometimes we even point to too much emphasis on works in our own life. This, this is... This isn't the apostasy the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about those who know better, those who know the truth and offer a different solution. You see, this is what I love about the Lord's table. It's an opportunity to come to Christ. It's an opportunity to to check ourselves. Are we falling into the trap of depending on ourselves or we trust wholeheartedly in Christ Jesus for salvation? Do Do we constantly go back and remember what he has done? What is our relationship to the sin that is in our lives? Do we recognize that, we ha- that it's been dealt with in, in Christ? Or are we trying to just do it all on our own? Are we relying on his strength? We're relying on our own to deal with it. Let me ask you a difficult question. What is your relationship to Christ? Are you a professor of Christ? But do you truly trust in him? Someone might say, well, I know I'm a Christian because of the, the things that I do my good works, I've experienced the things of God, I've made a profession, I've been baptized. You know, here's the, here's the warning, right? In, in Hebrews 6, the author is speaking to, to these kind of people that have been educated in the elementary facts. 
History's full of those who, who thought they were believers and then realized, hey, I wasn't. And they turn and they, they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do you know you're a believer? The answer is because you believe. You trust in Christ to save you from your sins because of what he has done for you. Because of the fact that he was perfectly obedient to the law and then died a death that he didn't deserve. And we believe that his obedience or his righteousness becomes ours in faith. And that he took our sin upon himself and then bore the wrath of God on the account of our sin. My friends, salvation is found in no other name. It is found only in Christ Jesus. We come to the table this morning and we recognize this is what Jesus Christ has done for me. He shed his blood. His body was, was broken for me. All my sin was cast on him and he bore the, the weight of God's wrath for my sin. He lived a, a perfect life. And when I place my faith and trust in what God has done, what Christ has done for me, then that perfect obedience, that perfect righteousness becomes mine in faith. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And as we come to the Lord's table, we reflect on what Christ has done for us. We take a, a moment and we look at our own lives and we take an account and we ask, what is, what is the relationship that I have with sin in my own life? And we think of Christ's triumph over it. And I, and I would suggest that then we walk away from the table and we're invigorated. We're grateful for what Christ has done and it spurs us on to good works, to live a Christian life that is obedient to the Lord Jesus because of what he has done for us in his death and burial and resurrection. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.